Welcome to another session of the Potter's Roundtable from Washington Street Studios. I'm Phil Bernberg. Today, last time we talked about um, bisque firing, so today we're going to go on to the next logical step in the process, which would be use of glazes, glaze application, and so forth. So we're going to be talking about tips for successful glazing, and we've broken this down into seven topics. And because this tends to be a long subject, we're going to be dividing it up actually into three parts, for the, uh, three different videos, three parts for this subject. So the first part today, we'll be talking about these two topics, glaze compositions and preparation and mixing. And then the next part, part two, we'll, we'll be talking about glazes that are already existing, glazes that have already been prepared, they're sitting in the studio and they're ready for use, surface preparation of the work, and how you actually apply, tips for applying the glazes to the work. And finally, in the last session, with the last part, we'll be talking about cleanup of the surface, cleanup of the glaze, and finishing of the glazes, and a little bit about firing, although we have another whole section that we'll be talking about firing, so this will just be a little bit of an introduction to the firing. Welcome to the Potter's Roundtable, a monthly podcast where we share our passion for the ceramic arts and a collection of topics specific to potters. Remember to subscribe so you don't miss a single episode. Enjoy the show. Okay. So, tips for successful glazing. Well, I have a few introductory comments that I'd like to make at the beginning before we actually get into these topics. And the first one is, that's I think is really important, is take your time when you're glazing. Good results really require as much attention to detail and as much patience as you show in the, in the whole rest of the process. So, I know a lot of people who, who are very careful when they're making the work and they carefully dry it and they carefully fire it, and then they rush through the glazing and they're dissatisfied with the results. So even though glazing may not be the, your, the favorite part of the process for you, I really recommend is try to slow down and, and take more time, more patience doing it, and I think you'll be more satisfied with the results. The second, the second aspect that I think I would, rec I would really recommend is don't be afraid to do small-scale tests. Don't test a glaze that you're unfamiliar with on one of your favorite pieces. Um, you glazes, even though they may, you know, they have a title and they, uh, like they may have a certain name to the glaze and they have a recommended firing temperature, that doesn't mean they're gonna come out perfect if you, just, if you follow that firing temperature. You really need to get to know a glaze, how it behaves under different conditions, different thicknesses on different clays, before you can apply it confidently. So I really recommend, especially if it's a new glaze, do some small scale tests, hopefully on the same kind of clay, where you can see how the clay responds to your particular way of handling it and your particular way of firing it. Second thing is, and along with the, as I mentioned about getting to know the glazes, for example, certain glazes work, types of glazes work better on certain types of clay. As an example, the, the classic Cone 6 Randy's Red Glaze really works best on highly colored clays. If you want to get the red coloration out of it, you're not going to get that on white stoneware or light colored clays. On the other hand, for instance, a lot, the whole family of Cone 10 glazes known as Copper Reds really work best on porcelain and very light colored clays. You won't get the nice brightest reds on dark colored stoneware. So you need to know that. You need to know how these glazes, what, what, what they're most suitable for. Um, another, another aspect of getting to know your glazes is, is whether they, what, are the, what are their tendencies to run or not. For example, most Cone 10 Chino glazes don't run at all. They'll never run. So so you don't have to worry about what they're going to do on the on the pot. 
On the other hand, there are certain categories of glazes that are known to run, and you just have to accept that. For, and for example, again, cone 10 red glazes tend to run. And even worse than those are cone 6, what are called macrocrystalline glazes. These are the glazes that produce these, ro these sort of rosettes, these circular rosettes of crystals. And they are, they are extremely runny. And so you need to know that um, in terms of how you apply them and how you even design the pieces that you're going to use them on. So, it's a good, it's really is a good idea, I think, to, even if when you know your glazes and how they behave is, think about how you're gonna be glazing a piece from the start. There's an old sort of saying in pottery that the minute you touch the clay, you should be thinking about how you're gonna finish the piece. And so this means, for instance, like when you're designing the piece and you're thinking ahead about the glazing, how are you gonna hold, let's say you, you dip or you pour the piece in a glaze, how are you gonna hold on to the piece so that you can glaze it, so that your fingers maybe won't get in the way? If the glaze is gonna run, maybe you wanna include a design feature on the pot that will allow the glaze to be, the, the glaze to be caught on the piece, like a, a a, a noticeable notch, let's say, below the, or above the foot ring, or a ridge or, or grooves or something that will catch the glaze. Take advantage of the fact that the glaze runs, rather than just assuming that it's sort of an obstacle you have to fight against. Okay, so let's get into understanding glaze compositions. And this is all part of tips for successful glazing because you will be more successful with your glazing if you really do understand just the fundamental characteristics of the glazes themselves. And one of the most important points, I think, in this aspect is the fact that the, the, the nominal cone rating of most glazes, whether it's earthenware, you know, cone 05 or 06, or cone 6, mid-range, or cone 10, those are only approximate designations. Because a glaze is, is, is listed in a reference or in the literature as a cone 6 glaze, it doesn't mean that it's best fired at exactly cone six. It might be a lot better at cone five, it might be better at six and a half or seven. All that is really is intended to be is a category. It's not a low fire glaze, for example, and it's not a high fire glaze. It's in the mid range somewhere. And this is something that you really need to determine for, your, for, the, for the way that you fire your work. Another thing that relates to temperature is the fact that as as you go from earthenware glazes 06 to cone 6 to cone 10, the glazes become less and less temperature sensitive. So an 06 glaze or an 05 glaze, typically you have to, you have to get very close to that ideal, a particular cone rating in order for it to be properly matured. The other extreme is most cone 10 glazes are, are much less sensitive to temperature, so they typically, they might work just as well at cone eight or nine or 11 or 12. And this is just a characteristic of the fluxes in the composition of the glazes. So as you go up in temperature, firing temperature, the glazes become less sensitive to small differences in the temperature. Another thing that's related to temperature is the fact that different glaze compositions start to melt at different temperatures. Even though you might, let's say you have, a, you have several different cone six glazes, depending on what the specific ingredients are in the glaze, one cone six glaze might actually start to melt sooner than another cone six glaze, even though at the end, at cone six, they're all fully mature. The reason why this is important is this affects overlaps. When you overlap one glaze over another, if one of the glazes is starting to melt significantly earlier than another one of the glaze, this can affect the appearance of the, of the overlap, in some cases negatively. You've probably all heard the expression, she know first or expect the worst. And a, and a good part of that is the fact that she know 
Chino does not melt very early, it melts very late. So if you put Chino over another glaze that's melting first, it kind of destroys the appearance because the, 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 un, the unfired Chino is floating on top of another glaze which has already started to melt. Um, some other just comments that relate to the glaze composition. If you're, if you're doing raw glazing, that is if you're glazing unbisked work, dried or leather hard work, you need to have more clay in the glaze recipe than if you're applying that same glaze recipe to bisqueware. And this is because you need something to compensate for the additional shrinkage of the, dry, of the, bis, of the dried clay. So if you have a, of a glaze recipe that's normally intended for use on bisqueware and you want to try to apply it on, on greenware, then you need to, you need to look at the, the clay content and see whether there's enough clay in it or if necessary, add more clay to allow for increased shrinkage. Um, on the other hand, if you have a glaze recipe that has a lot of clay, high clay in it, this is one of the, one of the most common causes of crawling and, and drying shrinkage when the, glaze, when the glaze is drying and then crawling during the firing. Because what happens is the clay shrinks during the drying of the glaze and it loosens its bond to the surface of the clay underneath. And you don't see it right away, but later on it shows up during the firing as crawling. So what you may have to do, if you see a glaze recipe that let's say has 20% clay in it, that's a lot of clay. And it doesn't mean that the glaze is absolutely going to, going to crack when it's, fought, when it's dried, but it's, it's possible, it's more likely to. So what you, can, what you might wanna do is, if you have that problem, is replace part of the clay that's in the glaze with calcined clay. We talked in a previous session about how the process called calcining is basically the process of heating something to bring about a chemical change. So if you take raw clay powder and you calcine it, you just heat it up to like red heat roughly, it's like a low bisque temperature, you drive off the water, and as we mentioned last time in the, in the bisking cycle, at that point, actually, the clay powder is no longer technically clay. And so it doesn't behave like clay. It doesn't absorb as much water. It doesn't shrink when it dries. It's not plastic. But it still has the same composition of clay minus the water. So I can substitute calcined clay or pre-baked or preheated clay for regular clay. The only thing I need to do is make up for the difference in the weight. And an easy, an approximation for this is Whatever the weight of clay that's required that you want to replace is, you replace 86% of that with dried clay. And what's the difference in the 14%? The 14% is the fact that clay, and I put, last time I put the formula for, on the board for kaolinite, contains 14% by weight of water. So when you bisque fire raw clay powder, you lose 14% by weight. You still have all the alumina and silica that you need, you've just lost the water. So you use 86% of the intended weight, use that for the, for the dried clay, for the, for the bisque clay, and you can substitute that. Okay, a couple more comments. Um, in, first, in terms of the composition, there are certain ingredients that are in glazes. Normally, most glazes, if you're not working with unusually hazardous materials, and I don't recommend that, but there are certain materials that still can be a little bit of a hazard to you because they can be very caustic. And there are two materials, any glaze that has wood ash in it, or also soda ash or sodium carbonate, they tend to be very caustic. So when you're handling the glazes, you want to be very careful you don't get them in your eye. And also, if you tend to have thin skin or 
sensitive skin, if you get your hands in these glazes, they can actually almost give you a chemical burn depending on how sensitive your skin is. So you do have to be careful with, with wood ash glazes or soda ash glazes in terms of just exposure to your eyes especially and exposure to, your, to, your, to any skin. Um, another comment is that glaze compositions, even a, a, sand, a standard glaze composition, there are certain minor adjustments you, want, you might want to make to that, that recipe depending on how you're going to apply it. We'll talk about that a little later when we talk about the application, but there, if you have a glaze recipe, you might want to do something different to, the, to that recipe if you're planning on, on spraying it, for example, or you're planning on brushing it. So we'll talk about that. And the final thing I just wanted to make about the glaze compositions is the fact that, that bad glaze results are not unusual. So if, you have, if you've ever had problems with a glaze, you're not alone in the world. Um, and part of the problem is, frankly, there are a lot of bad recipes out there. There are a lot of recipes in the literature, online, in, in, in books, even by well-known authors, that basically, through some either error or mis, you know, misprint or whatever, don't work the way they, they're intended to. And the other thing that's important is the fact that the firing conditions for a glaze also are very important for the, having the glaze come out properly. You can take a glaze, and even if you get the cone, you can, the cone correct, you can take a glaze and fire it one way and then fire the same glaze a different way and get fairly significantly different results. So just the fact that a glaze recipe is quoted in a book doesn't mean that you're going to get those exact results unless you fire it exactly the same way. And the chances of that are probably not very likely. Everybody tends to fire their kilns differently, um, and, and the, way that, the way you load it is a little different. Those, all, those factors all have an effect on the results. We hope you're enjoying the show. Please take a moment to leave a five-star review on your podcast platform of choice. It really helps new listeners find the show. Don't forget to subscribe to receive updates as new episodes are released. And if you'd like to support the video and podcast production of the Potter's Roundtable, become a patron. Go to patreon.com and search for the Potter's Roundtable. Your support will help us achieve our goal of creating a digital library spanning the ceramic arts for use by educators and artists alike. Thank you for your support. Now let's get back to the show. So that's, that's, those are a few comments about understanding glaze compositions. Let's move on to the second topic now, of preparation and actually in mixing of the glazes. Well, my first recommendation is when you're, after you've weighed out all the ingredients for the glaze, is basically you want to blend the, the ingredients in the dry form extremely thoroughly. Do a, a thorough dry blending. I, may, I tend to make up, like let's say 8,000 gram batches are, are typical for what we use around the studio here. And what I found is I just have the, 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 the glazed powders in a five-gallon bucket, and I'll go somewhere outside or I'll put on a dust mask somewhere where I'm not going to get exposed to the dust, and I'll just take a spoon, a metal spoon, and slowly blend the material. I don't need any, any kind of a fancy blender or mixer. I can just blend the material by just stirring it gently with a spoon so I don't make a lot of dust. The dry blending is particularly important because some glaze ingredients tend to be either lumpy or very sticky, and they're very hard to disperse. And the worst one in this category is bentonite. Bentonite is only used as a glaze additive. We'll talk about this later, but it's only used to help keep the glaze in suspension in the wet form. But when bentonite gets wet, it makes an extremely sticky powder and, and sticky little lumps that are very hard to break up. 
So if you don't, if you don't disperse this small amount of bentonite thoroughly in all the, the rest of the ingredients, when you add the water, you're gonna get little lumps of bentonite that are very hard to eliminate. And the easiest way to solve that is thoroughly mix it in the dry form so the bentonite is really spread out throughout the mix and you won't get those lumps. While, and then, so once you've, once you've dry blended the powder, then the next thing would be to combine the powder with water. And again, what I really recommend is if you can, add the powder to the water rather than the water to the powder. It's very easy to have a bucket of dried powder and then just tend to, you, you know, the temptation is to pour water in and stir it and pour a little more water in until you get the consistency that you like. If you can, don't do it. Because by adding the powder to the water, you avoid lump formation. And again, this, you know, you can get rid of the lumps with a lot of mixing and attention later on. But if you can, to me, if it's easier, if I can avoid them up front, I'll save myself some work later on. So typically what I'll do is I'll take a bucket and I'll put some water in it. And I, and I, I guess, but I, I, I estimate that the water that I'm putting in is less than I'm going to need. It's just enough to sort of mix the powder, not enough to make the final glaze. So I'll put some water in the bucket and I'll slowly add the powder into it stirring with a paddle or a spoon or something. And what happens, this is the same procedure you use from the proper procedure for making plaster of Paris. You add the powder to the water, so the powder hits the water and sinks down in and it breaks up and it tends not to form lumps. When you pour the, if you pour the water into the powder, you tend to get lumps and it's very hard sometimes to break those up. So I, I slowly sprinkle or add the powder to the water with stirring until it's completely in there. And hopefully I end up with all the powder and I end up with a thick mixture, which is a lot thicker than what I'm going to want in the end. But that's okay, this is all I'm, at this point, I'm just trying to do the mixing. So then when I get, so the next step, then I've added the water to the powder, is I wanna do, I wanna do wet mixing. And basically what I recommend is some kind of what's called high shear mixing. And what that means is some kind of a mixing device that's actually gonna rip the little particles and the lumps apart and break them up. And this is an example of a high shear mixing head. This can be mixed, this can be held in to a, a drill, an electric drill, this is kind of an industrial level one, but you can buy very similar ones that are used for mixing paint. And the shaft might only be about a foot long, about that long, and it might have a little less of a complicated looking head on it, but it does the same thing. The idea is when this is spinning at high speed, these blades tend to literally rip the lumps apart. It doesn't just stir it. Stir it really isn't adequate enough. So I don't recommend, again, if you can, don't just use a spoon or a paddle to mix it. If you can, get something like this that turns at high speed and It'll, it'll break up the lumps much more effectively. If you'd like to see a video version of this presentation, just head out to YouTube and search for Washington Street Studios. Another thing that I found for small quantities is the handheld immersion mixer works great. If you're making up small test quantities of glaze, something like this works great. I can just, if I'm making up, let's say, a quart of glaze or something, this is great for just sticking into the, into the glaze and, and whipping it up and breaking up lumps. Okay, so I've wet mixed the glaze, and the next thing you might want to do in sort of the normal sequence would be to pass this, this wet mix through some kind of a screen or a sieve. And you really do that for several reasons. One of them is to remove contamination or impurities. It's fairly common when you're buying industrial grade materials, you might find small bits of wood maybe in the, in, when you're buying let's say a 50 pound bag where the material has come from something like that, it's very possible to find small pieces of paper or small flakes of wood or just sort of contamination and you want to get rid of those. 
so that's one of the reasons. You also want to screen out grit. Even I, I, years ago, I, I was buying a particular brand of feldspar, and every once in a while, I'll get a chunk in it. And what I what I assumed was probably in the factory there was probably a hole in the sieve somewhere. There was a hole that, although most of the powder was getting sieved to the proper size, there was a hole that some larger chunks were getting through, and they were ending ending up in the bag. And that's that's not unusual. So um, as I say, especially for industrial grade materials, which which these are that we're using. So you want to you want to remove any kind of grit or coarser chunks like that. The other thing the screening does for you is it breaks up, it can break up any lumps of, of ingredients, not necessarily hard lumps, but just lumps that I mentioned where the, the water doesn't thoroughly mix and you get these sticky lumps. If they haven't broken them up with the mixing process, the sieving helps to break those up. So the, 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 the sieving actually helps, can, can help improve the mixing. The mesh size, the size of the mesh, um, really depends, your choice of the mesh really depends on two things, in my mind, is the quality of the raw materials. I know, for example, when I look at a glaze recipe and I look at the glaze, the, the individual ingredients, I know that by looking at them, for instance, some of them really are not going to require any screening. They're, they're uniformly high quality. They never contain any grit. So if I wanted to, I could probably skip the screening. Other materials I know typically, even under the best circumstances, tend to be lumpy or they they're gritty, and so I know I'm going to have to I'm going to have to sieve them. So to a certain extent, by becoming familiar with the raw materials, I can look at a recipe and decide ahead of time whether I think I'm I'm, I'm going to need to screen it or not. The other thing is that. There are, there are differences in, depending on how you're going to apply the glaze also, you might want to screen the glaze to a coarser or a finer or in a finer mesh size. By the way, mesh size, when you talk about a mesh size, that's the number of openings per inch. Most, most screens are just rectangular meshes like window screens, and so the number of openings per inch, that's the mesh size. So 200 mesh means there are 200 openings per inch in, the, in, this, in this screen that's in the sieve. Okay. One other one one additional comment um, is that what I recommend. Okay, so let's say you've screened the glaze now. Um, is that and that presumably the glaze is not still at the at the exact you know sort of thickness or viscosity that you'd like to apply it. So you're going to do the final adjustment. You might add some water typically to bring it up to the final consistencies you'd like. But what I'd recommend is don't do that right away. If you can, let the after you've screened it, let it sit for a day or two before you do the final adjustment. The reason for that is a lot of the ingredients that you put in in a clay in a glaze, especially the clay tend to cont continue to absorb water over the next couple of days. They can't absorb all the water they're going to end up with right away. So if you adjust it and you start using it immediately, chances are in a day or two or a week, you're going to have to do it again. So let the glaze sit. Let the water be fully absorbed in all the ingredients to the point where it's not going to change, and then make the final adjustment. And so once you, when you do that, when you make the final adjustment to the, uh, to the consistency, consistency that you like, if you get it to the point where you really like the, the, the proportions of water and powder, and you say, well, you know, and this is a glaze you lose, use fairly often, you might say, well, boy, this, this came out great this time. I'd like, this, I'd like to repeat this next time. There's something you can do to sort of 
give you a guide for that, and that is to take advantage of specific gravity. Specific gravity, by definition, is the weight of something compared to the weight of an equal volume of water. So if I had a quart of some kind of powder and a quart of water, the ratio of those weights would be the specific gravity. There aren't any units on specific gravity. It's not like grams or anything like that. It's just a ratio. It's just a number like 1.4, which means that the material, for example, is 1.4 times as heavy as the same volume of water. So what you can do is, a, an easy way to take advantage of this is when you have, when you've mixed up the glaze and you, and it's, a cons it's gotten to a consistency that you really like, you like the way it applies to a piece, for example, or you like the way it brushes on, take a, take a quantity of it, maybe a cup measure of the liquid glaze, well stirred, and weigh it. And then whatever that weight is, let's say, so you have a cup of glaze and the glaze, and the glaze weighs 200 grams, let's say, that's the weight you want to shoot for the next time you make it up. You don't, need to, you don't need to actually calculate a specific gravity because if you, let's say you make up the glaze again and the, and the weight of that same cup amount of the liquid glaze comes out at less than 200 grams, that means you don't have enough powder because water is lighter weight than the ceramic powder. So if, it, if the weight is 180 grams, it means, it means you've got too much water. If the weight is heavier than the 200 grams, you've got, it means you've got too much powder. So typically, if I'm, if I'm trying to hit a, a certain consistency of the glaze to repeat what I've done before, I'll keep a little bit of the powder aside while I'm doing the adjustment so that if I need to add more powder, I can, and I can always add more water. And that way I have both and I can finally bring it to the consistency I want. Okay, that's the end of this, this portion of the talk right now. We've just, we've just talked about glaze compositions and, and preparation and mixing. The next time we're gonna start part two, we'll start with talking about glazes that have already been prepared and they're sitting in the, in the studio ready for use. Okay, well, we hope this discussion today has been useful to you. If you'd like to support our educational outreach efforts, you can go to patreon.com and search for the Potter's Roundtable. Also, check out our website, hfclay.com. Thank you again for visiting with us today, and the next topic will be part two of this series on tips for successful glazing. Thank you for visiting with us. The Potter's Roundtable is brought to you by Washington Street Studios and our patrons. If you enjoy the show, please subscribe, give us a five-star review, and tell your friends. If you want to learn more about Washington Street Studios and shared studio memberships, please visit our website at www.hfclay.com. Thank you, and we'll see you again next time on the Potter's Roundtable.